Well, good morning. I'm Danny Martin, one of the leaders here at City on Hill. Great to see everybody here with us in this new year, and great to be seen or heard by all of you joining us online. If you're looking for a church in the Rosemont area and you're able, we hope that you'll come and join us soon. We've got a great group of people for you to meet here, ways to connect, ways to serve, ways to grow spiritually. Come and join us when you're able. So we're resuming today our series called The End of the World as We Know It, a teaching series on the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians. We've just finished up the holiday season. There were planes, trains, automobiles. There were segues, if you're into that sort of thing. There was a lot going on, so I'll recap where we've been in the letter so far. 1 Corinthians is a letter written to one of the first Christian churches in Corinth, Greece, by the Apostle Paul around the year 54 AD. Paul had actually helped to start the church in Corinth, and he lived there for about 18 months. So he would have been on a first-name basis with a lot of the Corinthian Christians. After leaving the city of Corinth, he continued spreading the good news about Jesus Christ in the city of Ephesus right across the sea. But some of Paul's friends from Corinth went to Ephesus to alert him of some wild stuff that started going on in Corinth in his absence. So he wrote what we call 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth to help them course correct. In the first four chapters of the letter, Paul broadly addressed the problem of disunity in the Corinthian church caused by cultural standards that the Corinthians had brought in from outside. They were dividing into factions over which leaders seemed more educated, who spoke more eloquently, who seemed to be the most in charge. They thought status and the trappings of success mattered. They weren't seeing with Jesus' point of view. If we were to summarize Paul's response to this whole matter, a good place to look is 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. Open there with me in your Bible, if you will. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. While you're getting to 1 Corinthians 1, 27, I'll remind you that Bible reading is one of the most foundational spiritual disciplines for all of our growth. If you haven't already, I hope you'll make a Bible reading plan part of your year, and regular Bible reading is part of your routine. It's great to read it together here at church, but also by ourselves and with our families and loved ones. 1 Corinthians 1:27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you chose the weak and foolish things. Thank you that you sent Jesus as a frail baby so that anyone who comes to him can find new life in you, and that we find this, when we find this new life, it's the end of the world as we used to know it. As we embrace new life in a new world by your Holy Spirit, change us and empower us to live aligned with your will, to humble ourselves and follow you, even when the world tells us we're backward and foolish to follow. We believe following Jesus is not just a good thing, but the best thing. 
Open our hearts to your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So if what we just read in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29 is a kind of summary thesis of everything going on in chapters 1 through 4, then Paul's big picture goal in the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians is this, to define what true Christian wisdom is, and on the basis of this wisdom, to define what faithful Christian leadership and unity are. When we have Jesus' view of wisdom as our foundation, it will create a healthy view of our church leaders and healthy relationships within our church family. If you've ever seen a local church that's a mess, it's probably because folks there are pretty loosey-goosey with Jesus' view of wisdom. They've probably become obsessed with status and power, They've probably stopped believing in God's authority to define good and evil and our need to submit to that authority. So in a nutshell, that's what Paul's talked about so far, and it's something that we have to remember as we go forward in studying the rest of the letter. Now we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul turns to specific issues that have been reported to him, and we have the fun privilege of starting with a real whopper. So, in the immortal words of Samuel L. Jackson in Jurassic Park, hold on to your butts. We read this in 1 Corinthians 5, starting in 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? You Corinthians are proud of this? People know about this? And think it's good? Even the non-Christian Corinthians who have mistresses and prostitutes and pedophilic relationships think that you, the church, are partying too hard. There are two big reasons why the Corinthian Christians would have reacted this way to this situation. And the truth, I suspect, is some combination of them. First, is that the Corinthians misunderstood the biblical teaching of freedom in Christ. If somebody completes a prison sentence and is set free, they don't then get to ignore the law they broke because they already went to prison for it. Freedom in Christ is not freedom to do whatever we want with zero consequences from God and others. That seems to be what the Corinthians thought. It was certainly a misunderstood teaching, not only limited to Corinth, because Paul has to go to some length in his letter to the Romans to address those on the other side of the spectrum who thought that Paul was teaching that Christians can do whatever they want and that he was wrong to do it. To that perspective, Paul says this in Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we keep doing bad stuff so that God has to show more grace to us, so actually we're helping God to bring more grace into the world? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Then in 17 of Romans 6, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. 
Freedom in Christ means that God has set us free from sin and how sin has held us down all of our lives. It means that we are transferred from servitude to a wicked slave master to service to a generous, merciful, loving Lord. The Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth put it this way, the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. Freedom in Christ is like freedom from credit card debt. If you had crushing credit card debt and found tomorrow that a generous friend was going to completely pay off everything, your first instinct should not be to go on a shopping spree. Don't do that. You'll give poor Dave Ramsey a heart attack. Freedom in Christ is like having lifelong shackles removed from you, and now you can actually move around and do what you were really made to do. It's freedom to become the people God made us to be, the very best version of ourselves in him, to live under his authority the way that we're meant to. Many of the Corinthians certainly misunderstood this. Second, the Corinthians probably believed that they were ahead of the curve ethically. Oh, you, you, you put the meme up. Oh, man. Oh, well. That's okay. We'll do it again. It'll be funny. Everybody laugh when it comes up again. <laughs> okay. So they thought they were ahead of the curve. Because... Oh. <laughs> Thank you for running slides. <laughs> Paul had said that they were proud of their reaction to this situation with the sexually immoral, immoral guy. And if you're proud of something, well, that usually means you think you've done good. They didn't see fit to judge that this man was committing adultery by engaging in a sexual relationship with a woman who wasn't his wife, nor did they see fit to judge that the woman in question was his stepmother. They didn't see fit to judge. This is something that is rampant even today, even in the church. There are lots of folks running around doing some pretty dumb stuff. And if you want to try and correct them, offer a little advice, they're like, Jesus said, don't judge. Only God can judge me. As if that is somehow a get-out-of-jail-free response. Only God can judge you? That's not better for you. That's worse for you. Meme time. That should scare you. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, okay, get him off. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, never judge anyone or anything. What he said was, remember that as you're making your judgments, you too are going to be judged. So in your judgments, have some mercy and some humility with the end goal of harmony and restoration for the one that's being judged. And if you're trying to help someone else, they might have a little speck of sawdust in their eye. Meanwhile, you've got a big whopping chunk of wood in yours. How are you going to judge? More importantly, how are you going to help someone if you're actively struggling through the same exact thing? There are a lot of people even in the church who would say that when it comes to stuff like this, who are we to judge? It's not my business. Who cares? 
And as a society, most of us has been, have been taught that this is the best way. It's the resounding message of our arts and entertainment, our public education, many of our political leaders. As long as people aren't breaking the law, we have no right to judge anyone at all for any reason. Everybody needs to put their own happiness in front of everything else, and it's summarized in phrases that we have all heard. Follow your heart. You do you. You can be whatever you want to be. Statements like these are taken in our day and age as common sense. But they're not common sense. They're summaries of a philosophy that's been brewing for a few hundred years and has, since World War I, grown into something of the norm in Western culture. It's called the philosophy of expressive individualism. It constitutes many of the unspoken rules of our society. What expressive individualism basically says is this. To find a good life, everybody must start by looking inward to discover themselves, then looking outward to find a community to affirm them, then looking upward to religion, spirituality, or philosophy to find inspiration to live the way that they want to live. Here are just a few of the people whose ideas pioneered where we now stand today. The Swiss philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He said, trust your heart rather than your head. And Rousseau did this. He followed his heart by abandoning all five of his children to an 18th century orphanage where, in what should be a shock to no one, they all died. The German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, he said, egoism is the very essence of a noble soul. For the final 10 years of Nietzsche's very lonely life, he suffered from mental degradation, probably because of a syphilis infection, and lived in a mental asylum where he reportedly danced naked and claimed to be historical figures like Buddha and Napoleon. The French philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, he said, man is nothing else but what he makes himself. What did Sartre make of himself? He was an egotistical, alcoholic, drug-addicted, serial womanizer. Near the end of his life, he admitted, I'm empty. There are not many things left that excite me. If you want to know where the philosophy of expressive individualism leads, just look to the authors of its core values. Child abandonment, child abandonment and crushing guilt, isolation and delusions, looking back on your selfish life and concluding that it was all boring and pointless. The reason this philosophy is ultimately bankrupt is that it assumes there is no such thing as objectively, objective morality, meaning and truth, only subjective, and if that's too much word salad for you, basically it's selfish. The reason I'm taking so much time on this is that we are probably not going to have someone at church engaged in a scandalous relationship with their stepmom. But there are principles behind what the Apostle Paul is teaching 
that do apply to almost any situation we might come across. And I see expressive individualism as foundational to the resistance many would put up to biblical truth. If your operating assumption is that everyone gets to decide their own personal identity and morality, then it doesn't matter what specifically what was going on in 1 Corinthians 5 for your objection to be exactly the same. Where do you get off telling anyone what they can or can't do or what is and isn't good? Just as the Corinthians brought their cultural assumptions into church, we Americans bring our cultural assumptions into church. This is one we face. The question to ask is how do you know if something is good or bad? To find a meaningful life and know right from wrong, we start by looking up. We don't start by looking in, concluding this is me, deal with it or get out of my life. Then go find a bunch of quote unquote friends to clap for us. Those aren't friends, that's an audience. They'll turn on you the moment you stop performing the show they wanna see. We must start by looking upward to God, the author of life, because he has the authority to define good and evil, to show us what he made us to be, to give us lives of goodness, meaning, and purpose. C.S. Lewis has a quote that I think summarizes this beautifully. I'm sure some of you have heard this before. He wrote this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Paul is calling the Corinthians to be humble, to accept the truth that they, need, that they needed to know they weren't right in this situation. They were not ahead of the curve. They needed to do something. And so he says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Inside the church, we have a responsibility to call one another to account and we are responsible to receive godly correction. There are some unfortunate things that have been going on within the church culture for a long time. One is something all of us should nod our heads in agreement with, abusive church leadership. If you've been attending here for a while, you know how I feel about this. I've heard enough stories, I've personally witnessed it. I hate this. I hate when Christians get so fearful about church budgets and butts and seats that they will tolerate and by proxy participate with the abuses of pastors, elders, and church staff. This tolerance of sin is almost always rooted in someone pleading that the ends justify the means. The worship leader's arrogant, but look how many people are here because of the music. Yes, the elder's trying to control the whole church with his money, but we need his money. Yes, the pastor is a complete jerk, 
but wow, have you heard him preach? Even church leaders are not beyond appropriate correction based on God's standard, his word, the Bible. Another unfortunate thing is the unhealthy overcorrection to this issue when Christians refuse to put themselves into positions where they are technically under a local church's spiritual authority. It's a uniquely American problem that there are too many churches, making it too easy for Christians living in need of legitimate correction for their good to never be called to account because if they don't like what they hear or what somebody said to them, they will take their toys and go play somewhere else. They will go and do the same thing they were doing at church A until church B realizes it, and then they'll go to church C and on and on and on. The point isn't who is doing the correction. The point is the necessity of correction. For this man in Corinth, Paul says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved on judgment day. He needed to know that his behavior was destructive. And if he wasn't going to change his ways, he wouldn't be allowed to participate in his church. Paul was saying this, let him follow his path where it will ultimately lead him. You can't lead a horse, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. We learn more from our failures than from our successes. We don't want him to fail ultimately, but he may need to fail temporarily to grow. Then Paul tells us in verse 6 why this correction was needed. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? He's talking about bread. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I am Italian. But when I moved to Chicago for grad school, people started accusing me of being Jewish. And I don't have a problem with being mistaken for something I'm not. I have no issue with Jewish people. I know the nose is big. <laughs> the reason I say accuse is that if you ask me my ethnic background and I say Sicilian, and you say, are you sure you're not Jewish? Where's your mother from? Now you're accusing me. You're calling me a liar. I'm not Jewish, but man, I love matzo bread. That saltless, flavorless, gigantic cracker that's bigger than your head. You can get a truckload of them dirt cheap from the grocery store after Passover. Mmm. He said he's not Jewish, but he's going on a rabbit trail about great deals on matzo bread. Matzo bread is what Paul is talking about here. It's unleavened bread, flat bread. Leaven, or yeast, throughout the Bible is symbolic of negative influencing agents. There's nothing wrong with using yeast to make your bread rise, but God uses it as a symbol. It's a way God reminds us to maintain boundaries with what we allow to influence us. Paul's using these Old Testament stories about the Passover and leaven, 
The Corinthians would have been familiar with these stories because at the time they didn't have the whole New Testament like we do. Their Bible was the Old Testament. So Paul refers to the Old Testament to make a point about what was going on in their church at the time. In the same way that leaven was to be removed to symbolically demonstrate and remind the people to be careful about what they let influence them, Paul now says that this man's behavior in Corinth is an influencing agent. So there's parts to the equation. First, the situation itself, but second, the situation is, is that it caused many in the church to boast, which isn't good in itself, but they're not even right about what they're boasting about. The man's behavior is influencing the whole church toward this kind of sexual libertarianism. If they thought it was good for this guy to have a romance with his stepmom, why wouldn't it be okay for others to do it? Why not throw stepdads into the mix, step this and step that, and once all the footnotes and qualifiers are thrown in, they're going to end up saying what we talked about earlier, who am I to judge? It reminds me of a story shared by the author Madeline Lingle. She was married to an actor. Aside here, if you're a writer and your spouse is an actor, you'd better believe in God. Or at least in Bon Jovi, because you're going to be living on a prayer. So in their definitively income insecure life, in which they were raising children, Madeline shares this story about Christian art as an influencing agent like Paul is talking about right here. She says, my husband came home from the theater one night with a script of a new play in which he had been offered a juicy role. He gave it to me to read, and when I had finished, I simply handed it back to him. He nodded. I wouldn't want the kids to see me in this. I'm not going to take it. We needed money for rent and food and clothes and for our growing children. Hugh needed a job, but the criterion he used was, would I want the kids to see me in this? If he didn't care about truth and integrity, what the kids saw him in wouldn't matter. Perhaps this is an insight into Christian art. If we try to follow in Jesus's way, what the children see us in does matter. Our thoughts, beliefs, actions, and inactions do affect other people. Don't think for a second that how you act in traffic or what you look at on your phone at 12.30 a.m. on a Friday when no one's around to see you means nothing right here, right now. This is the beautiful and the terrifying thing about church. If it hurts one of us, it hurts all of us, even if the thing doing the hurting is you yourself. We are not islands. That's why we hold one another to account inside the church. That's why this guy's sexual behavior at Corinth demanded Paul say something, and why this incident still stands today as an example of why sexual immorality of any kind is not a live and let live kind of issue in the church. Because what the children see in us and what we see in each other matters. But here's a key qualifier, verses 9 and forward. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, he's referring to a previous letter he sent them that we don't have in our Bibles, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world, the non-Christians, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. 
But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is really important. It's not our job to judge non-Christians. It is God's job. It is not the church's role to build defensive walls and to hunker down. I've shared before that Sarah and I lived in northern Utah for several years, and I have an expertise in Mormon studies and a particular interest in how biblical Christianity has grown in Utah and how that happened and how some of those principles might be applied elsewhere in the growth of the Christian church. If you don't know, Utah was settled by Mormons, and it's historically been a Mormon state. For much of Utah's history, the closest thing to a large Bible-believing church would have been a church like ours, actually. The majority of Christian churches were attended by people who were forced to move to the region because of work, usually with the military, uh, railroads, or mining industries, and as soon as Dad's job was over, they were out of Dodge. So Bible-believing churches like ours were 25 to 50 people, scattered far and wide, often led by pastors who didn't want to be there. It was the ministry equivalent to being exiled to Siberia. Most of these churches viewed themselves as fortresses surviving deep in enemy territory with no hope of relief. Everybody was hunkered down. But in the late 1980s, there was a paradigm shift in church growth when three leaders changed how their churches were engaging with the uniquely non-Christian culture all around them. Each of them had to help their churches turn a corner in understanding that they were not fortresses hunkering down in enemy territory. They were instead an expeditionary force opening up the field for others to come in. And by the grace of God, that is exactly what happened in Utah. We spent some time today talking about expressive individualism and a particular kind of sexual sin inside the church and the danger of leaven. And then Paul just expanded the list of sins and worries by adding more stuff to it. But the church's role is not to be a fortress, but an expeditionary force. That's why Paul specifically said in verse 10 that he's not talking about fleeing the sin of the people of the world because then you'd have to leave the world. It was true then and it's true now. Build a bunker or pay Elon Musk for a ticket. These are your options. So if you can't afford SpaceX or a bunker and you want to take seriously Jesus' command to every one of us who calls ourselves Christian that we are to tell people about him, I want to remind you of the blessed practices. The reason we talk about the blessed practices occasionally is that Jesus has called all of us to make disciples, to tell people about him, but very few of us are gifted at doing this. We are not excited about this part of the sermon, and we're often fearful that we will be asked to strike up awkward conversations with total strangers. We feel that. That's why we talk about bless because we already have relationships with people who we see every day who haven't found freedom in Jesus. And because we know these people, we are the best ambassadors to them. We don't have to be door-to-door -door salesmen to random strangers. 
We think the blessed practices are a great tool all of us can use right now. I'll remind you quickly what they are. First is the letter B to begin with prayer. I can't tell you how important it is for all of us to pray for those who we know who are far from God and to pray for opportunities to get to know them better. One of the most important aspects of prayer is that it changes us. Second is L, to listen well. When we listen to people, we show them that we care about them. We build bonds of trust with them. We create opportunities for deeper relationships. Third is E for eat. Everybody eats. And one of the best ways to get to know someone is to eat together, share a coffee, especially if we already have opportunity to do this at work, school, or in the neighborhood. First S is serve and love. When people get to know us and come to trust us and see that we're real friends, it gives us opportunity to serve their real needs because it's coming from a friend, not from somebody who views them as a project. Last, to share your story. When we've built trust with people and shown that we are true friends, that they are not a project, not only do they want to listen when we speak, but we feel more comfortable to speak because we're having integrity with them. We can share our story of what God has done for us and trust him to do the work. It's not our role to judge those outside or to tell them that they have to act like a Christian before they can become one. Our role is to bless the people God has already placed in our day-to-day lives. Part of the reason the Apostle Paul takes so seriously this issue of sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 5 and of our need to discern right from wrong and call it out and do something about it is that if our churches are so busy just trying to get everybody to keep their hands off each other, how are we supposed to grow spiritually? How can we live the God-sized lives of objective person, purpose and meaning that he's called us to? How are we supposed to, to be on the God-given mission when we can't even follow the most basic of orders? That's what's really at stake here in 1 Corinthians 5. It's about protecting the very soul and mission of the church. Thankfully, the story of this man in 1 Corinthians 5 has a happy ending. We find out in 2 Corinthians that when the church obeyed the Apostle Paul and held their brother accountable, he admitted his sin. He cut off the relationship. He sought forgiveness and reconciliation. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians, give it to him. Restore him, forgive him, bring him back into the community. Do not hold it against him. It's time for everybody to move beyond this together because church, there is work to be done. Worship team, you guys can start making your way up. You ever make a funny noise and your dog does that tilty head thing? Our job is to live such a Christian life that people will tilt their heads at us like the confused doggy. How are you so patient? How are you so generous? How could you possibly forgive that person? Because the capital Q question behind these sorts of questions is this. What do you have in your life that makes you able to live this way? When we are keeping first things first and living in true biblical unity, people will hear loud and clear that the answer to that question is God's love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us 
when we trusted in Jesus Christ. And it's to Jesus and what he did for us when he gave his life on that cross that we now turn in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So let's begin preparing our hearts for that now. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So as our worship team leads us, come up as you like to take the communion cups here, reflect on Jesus and his grace, and eat and drink the wafer and juice when you're ready.